We are now ready <coughs> to clear my throat and No, it's not the season. It's my season year-round. Oh, I can dump all kind of garbage down here. This is, this is pretty good. <clears throat> We're now ready for the final climactic scene of all those comprising the group I have named the third parenthetical visions. And this last vision is directly preparatory to the seven bold judgments. As a matter of fact, God in the Revelation remarkably prefaces the bold judgments. Now, as we saw in chart eight, the overview of the seals, trumpets, and bowls, the seventh of each is or contains the next series. That is, the seventh seal is the trumpets. The seventh trumpet, or the third woe, is the bowls of wrath. But more than the previous judgments, God in his word, as it were, teases the final group of seven because it is the climax, the third and final act to the entire tribulation. And it began back in chapter 11. Let's turn to that. Revelation 11. <clears throat> and let's read verse 15. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of the world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Reading that, we think, okay, here we go. The, last, the, the curtain is at last rising on the third act. Here we go. That's chapter 11. What follows is the group of parenthetical visions that run from chapter 11, 15 to chapter 15, verse 8. With this last vision described in chapter 15 being yet another prefacing scene for the seven bowls of wrath. We just never seem to get here. Uh, Marion, before you sit down. I mean, I don't want to put you on the spot or anything, but grab the two handouts there that you guys missed the last time. Bring her up. Bring her up on the platform here, maker. <clears throat> The actual pouring out of the bowls does not take place until verse 2 of chapter 16. All of this, the inserted parenthetical visions, the teases, 
All of this serves to heighten expectancy in the reader and emphasizes the cataclysmic strength and finality of the bold judgments. The curtain is indeed now ready to rise on the final act, but first, and I can't, can't help but see this in theatrical terms, we are granted in chapter 15 a glimpse of the cast getting into costume and being handed their props before entering the stage proper. This chapter as a whole can also be seen as the overture playing before the first curtain opens. Now if we could switch to chart 15, please, Zeb. Let's read the first portion of our passage, Revelation 15, verses 1 to 4. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what happened to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number on it of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. John Walvert points out that this is the third and final of three important signs in heaven. The first and second we saw in chapter 12. Turn back there with me, please. Chapter 12. We see the first sign in verses 1 and 2. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain, to give birth. And then the second sign is in verse 3. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. John Walvard writes, The three signs taken together represent important elements in the prophetic scene. First, Israel, that is, the woman. Second, the final world empire under the control of Satan and the beast, that is, the great red dragon. And three, the seven angels having the seven last plagues, that is, the divine judgment upon the satanic system and political power of the beast. So now we're ready for verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous. Seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. This final vision before the pouring out of the bowls is called great and marvelous. 
megas and thomaston, used together only here and in verse 3. They express the enormous importance of this sign as it contains the final outpouring of God's wrath on the wicked, unrepentant sinners of the earth. There appears to be nothing significant about these angels. They're just seven more holy messengers called to do the Lord's bidding. In God's word, the number seven represents completeness, which is especially apt here. As the text tells us that this is the last of the three series of seven to be inflicted on the earth. In fact, the original Greek makes it even more emphatic. Having seven plagues, comma, the last ones. This is it. No more after this. Now, once again, I'm intrigued by something that doesn't seem to be noticed by most of our commentators. I leave it to you to decide whether I have superior insight or am or certifiable. Twice in this chapter... Verses 1 and 6. The seven angels are described as having or had, depending on your translation. They have a contest that is already in possession of seven plagues. I don't know how you can read it any other way. They have seven plagues. From the beginning of the scene, they have these plagues in hand. Note here about the word plagues, which all of our versions use. It translates the Greek plias, and although it's a pretty faithful transliteration, it can be misleading. The word means a blow caused by a lash more often than not a stripe or a wound. It's translated blows in Acts 16.23, quote, When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely, end quote. When we read plagues, we probably have in mind a, a creeping sickness or disease, something that weaves through the, uh, the society and wipes people out. But these last seven judgments will be strong, abrupt, and lethal blows inflicted on the earth. More on this later. Now, I'll continue to use the word plague because that's what all of our versions use. Uh, but they could have chosen a better word. Now, this is what intrigues me. I know you've been waiting for this. Twice we are told the seven angels have the plagues to start with. But then in verses 6 and 7, we are told that when the seven angels emerge from the temple, or better, sanctuary in the temple, they are each handed a golden bowl, quote, full of the wrath of God. Taken literally, this would seem to differentiate between the plagues and the bowls of wrath of God. The first is already in the possession of the angels. The second is given them at the last minute by, quote, one of the four living creatures, one of the seraphim, from around the throne of God. 
Commentators, as a rule, just kind of mush this all together and move on. But the text speaks of them as different things. Or as MacArthur, they see the bowls as, quote, the means by which the plagues will be dispensed. But this misses the fact that the bowls, the bowls are handed to the angels already full of the wrath of God. They're not handed empty bowls into which to place their plagues, but bowls that are already full. My conclusion is this. When these bowls are eventually flung out upon the earth, each, each blow is comprised of the combination of the two. Think of it this way. Each plague represents the raw material, as it were, while God's wrath represents the force behind it, supplying the lethal intensity. I would actually reverse MacArthur, who said the means by the, the bowls are the means by which the plagues will be dispensed. Well, I can kind of see that. But I would say the plagues are the means by which the wrath of God is executed. Or put a little differently, each angel's plague is what God uses in his wrath against the earth. Now the verse continues. Which are the last? Because in them the wrath of God is finished. Don't miss that powerful closing phrase. What makes this last series of judgments so important? This will be the last and very worst of God's wrath. After this, the well will be dry. Now, this doesn't mean once the seventh bowl is poured out, suddenly everything will be lovey-dovey between God and man. No, no. There will still be the individual judgments of the great white throne, chapter 20, verses 11 to 15. Before that, the wrath of Christ when he returns. Then there will be Armageddon. Oh yeah, that. But the bowls represent the last expression of God's global wrath upon all. And I was thinking about that just this morning. We, we probably imagine the millennium Christ has returned. He's reigning on earth. We probably think that of that as kind of a, a blessed time. And it, in one respect, it will be. But, but physically, after you work through the seven bowls of wrath, and you also work through the side effects of them. In other words, if the sun's intensity is suddenly magnified to a miserable state, well, what happens first? The, the snow in the mountains feeding the rivers and oceans 
are suddenly overwhelmed. So there will be devastation there. That's not mentioned in the text, but there it would be there. And, and each, each bowl of wrath, each plague has something like that happening. The world, my point is this, the, the earth that Christ will reign over during the millennium is a wreck. Physically, a wreck. Herein lay clues to our interpretation of the tribulation as a whole. If this be the last, then all that came before, the seals and the trumpets, were also plagues expressing the wrath of God. This also means that there is a logical chronology built into the tribulation. Seals, then trumpets, then last, bowls. Now verse 2. And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. And those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. Verse 2 calls up the imagery from chapter 4 of Revelation, where we read in verse 6, And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal, and in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Ezekiel 1.22 and Exodus 24.9-10, which reads, Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. And under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire, as clear as the sky itself. Here, however, we have a new element added, fire. But John says that what he has seen is something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, which means we need not press the vision to be literal fire mixed with literal glass. In this specific moment, what had once been tranquil is now a flame from the wrath of God and about to be dispensed. And John saw something else. And I saw those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. As with most aspects of living in Christ, we tend to have a rather sterile view of faith. Probably our first thought is that our faith is synonymous with belief. Not necessarily inaccurate, but after pastor's message today and the last few weeks, we know that faith is a lot more. It's first of all trust then commitment, then if, necessar if it necessarily comes to it, sacrifice and even martyrdom. Here the text tells us that faith is also power. Our text says that those believers who the beast killed during the tribulation will, by their faith, be deemed victorious over their persecutor. 
and executioner. The ESV calls them conquerors. And part of their reward for that trust in and commitment to Christ Jesus will be to stand in a place of honor close to the throne as a privileged choir to sing their worship and praise before the throne. That's... <laughs> Even so, come Lord Jesus. I know Isla's going to be in the front row singing tenor, of course. So she'll be over there with the guys. Verses 3 and 4. Now, note, I, now, let's be clear before I move on. Let's be clear. We, we, that's wonderful imagery, and some of us who used to have voices, uh, it isn't talking about that. That's not our choir. Unless... No, no, there's no unless. It's not our choir. These are the martyrs from the tribulation. Verses 3 and 4. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Two songs are mentioned here as the source of what the martyrs will sing. First, the song of Moses, and then the song of the Lamb. The latter song, the song of the Lamb, probably refers back to that which was sung in chapter 5, verses 8 to 14. It, too, to the accompaniment of harps. This is the song voicing the Lamb's worthiness to open the seven seals of the scroll by means of his sacrifice for every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Opinions vary regarding the source for the song of Moses. The traditional, this, this is another one of those passages where your Bible tells you it's a quotation, but you cannot find it quoted. I mean, it's not a quotation. It's not a literal quotation. The traditional reference is to the song in Exodus 15, sung after the Lord gave them passage through the Reed Sea. An alternative could be the song Moses voiced right before his death in Deuteronomy 32. As John Walvoord points out, regardless of the sources for these songs, the former, the Song of Moses, recounts the faithfulness of God to Israel as a nation in recognition that a large number of Israelites are among those martyred dead. There's a lot of Jews standing there singing in this choir. The song, <coughs> the song of the Lamb speaks of redemption from sin made possible by the sacrifice of the Lamb of God and would include all the saints. Again, I was reminded as I, a day late, finished my Bible reading for last year, this morning, I was reminded of something we very often forget, which we've been looking at as we work through this, uh, of the last things, that it's 
It's all about Israel. Yes, it's about us, but, you know, right at the very end, New Jerusalem, what are the gates? How are the gates labeled? The heads of the tribes. In either case, the text of these verses, getting back to the Song of Moses, in either case, the text of these verses, while thematically similar, it does not literally quote any of those sources. The situation is one of worship and praise before the throne for what is about to happen. The conclusive answer to all the prayers, no less from the tribulation martyrs, the ones who have bared the, borne the brunt of it, for God to avenge the persecution and death of all those who have suffered for his name. In just moments, that will occur as the seven bowls of plagues and wrath are poured out. And verse 4 points specifically to Christ's millennial reign, quoting Psalm 66 and 86, as well as other passages. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. And here's the quotation. For all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Here the Lord is exalted for the fact that during the thousand years on earth, all nations will come to pay homage to the returned Messiah and King. Now we're ready for the rest of the chapter, verses 5 to 8. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the Ten of Witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Verse 5, after these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. We must not pass too quickly over this. First, here in a new vision for John, it is repeated that heaven has its own tabernacle of testimony, from which the tabernacle that Moses created for Israel was patterned. Tabernacle here translates the Greek skenes, which refers to the tent, the overall structure. While temple, as the ESV, right? Right, Mike? ESV, yeah. Uh, which uh, the ESV has uh, sanctuary. That's better translation. It translates the Greek naos, which here refers to the sanctuary or holy of holies. Testimony is, of course, a reference to the Ark of the Covenant containing the testimony, the tablets given to Moses. Let's refresh our memories here on the connection between the earthly tabernacle and the heavenly. Turn, please, to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 8.
First, verses 1 and 2. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens, a minister of the sanctuary, and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected, and not man. Now verses 4 and 5. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make up the tabernacle. For he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you up on the mountain. Implied the pattern was from the heavenly temple or tabernacle. What makes this worth a pause is that the angels, already in possession of the plagues, emerging from the tabernacle's holiest place, emphasizes that the root source of these plagues is God himself. Every day, Give me the old one back, please. There. Every day on this pitiful earth, we're reminded that this present generation, youth and adults alike, is woefully ignorant of higher things. This generation is so busy tearing down statues of, statues of profound minds because those historical figures did not share our values. What stupefying arrogance. That they don't take the time to learn that all these men and women were, like us, a mixture of many qualities. From the message this morning, I, I, I was reminded of the darkness in me even now. And the light. I'm not straddling the fence, it's the it's the eternal battle between flesh and the spirit. We're all a mixture of many qualities, some good, some bad. And they have the same level of ignorance with God and his Christ. God is not, nor has he ever been the one-dimensional character they make him out to be. We've seen that in this study. He is indeed love, grace, mercy, forgiveness, absolutely. But he is at the same time just, righteous, pure, sovereign, faithful to himself, and not least, holy. And at the end of all things, that just and holy God will hand seven of his angels the means by which to once and for all blast this sorry earth with powerful, hideous blows that will destroy millions. Because he is holy and will have lost patience with the rampant rebellion and sin on earth. Verse 6. And the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple clothed in linen, clean and bright, 
and girded around their chests with golden sashes. The apparel of these seven angels reveals their holiness and purity, their righteousness. They are clothed in linen, clean and bright. Walvard says the linen garments represent righteousness in action. In other words, elsewhere in the Revelation, it says those clothed in the white linen, it, it, it represents the acts of the saints, the righteous acts of the saints. Turn please to chapter 19. This is a recurring theme in the Revelation. Every believer will be so attired at the marriage of the Lamb. Look at verses 7 to 8 of chapter 19. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Well, that's where I read it. When Christ returns, he'll be accompanied by armies dressed the same. Look at verses 12 to 14. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Verse 6 ends, and girded around their chests with golden sashes. Whatever the golden sash represents, it's not clear. It certainly associate, associates these holy messengers with their Lord. For Christ was wearing the same thing as he appeared to John at the outset of the Revelation. Revelation 1.13, And in the middle of the lampstands I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. Now verse 7. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. Surrounding the throne in close proximity to the throne seat of God are the four living creatures, awesome, terrible-looking seraphim, one of which is designated, designated to hand out the seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God. It's an interesting picture, isn't it? Seven bowls full of the wrath of God. Do you carry that in a stack? Or do you? I mean, really, that's, you can't stack them. They're full. <clears throat> I digress. The King James Version vials is really incorrect. In the upcoming chart for these last seven judgments, which I'll be distributing next week, I've included a photograph of a wall carving from Seti I's temple in Abydos, Egypt, uh, 
showing the king making an incense offering to the God using a small bowl, similar to what our text describes. The Greek phileos is a shallow bowl used for pouring libations and offerings, typically a broad, flat vessel. It's not, it's not a vial. And these bowls will be full of the wrath of God. They are literally full of the wrath of God. The Greek, yemosis, means just that. It's a nautical term to describe a heavily laden ship, even bulging at the sides, it's so full. We might say loaded for bear. These bowls are each filled to the brim with God's wrath. And let me repeat what I said earlier. I conclude that each plague represents the raw material, as it were, while God's wrath represents the force behind it, supplying the lethal intensity. The plagues are the means by which the wrath of God is executed. Or put differently, each angel's plague is what God uses in his wrath against the earth. Now, I've tied the end of verse 7 with verse 8. Who lives forever and ever, and the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. I've associated the end of 7 with verse 8 because I believe they together make a cohesive statement. In fact, I'd also bring in verse 6 as part of that statement. Taken together, these passages presented right before the pouring out of the last seven judgments emphasize the right, the authority, and the power of a righteous and holy God to do what he is about to do. First, he lives forever and ever. This is not boilerplate here. Yes, we see it repeatedly in God's word, but here because the Lord God is eternal, to have ultimate communion forever with his people, he must expunge sin wherever it is, on and in the earth, in those who reject him by consigning them to an eternity of their own, away from his presence, and even in those who are his by changing each of them into a glorified state. Any sin has to be gotten rid of, expunged, because he's going to live with them forever and ever, and they with him. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. The final climactic imagery, right before we descend into the pain and chaos of the seven bowls, is of the temple's sanctuary filled with smoke. Repeatedly in God's word, smoke is used to demonstrate the fierce power of God. It represents, in turn, his glory, as here in verse 8, his majesty, his holiness. But none of these in a gentle, comfortable manner. It's meant to drive mere humans to their knees in fear, worship, or both. 
The first occurrence is at Mount Sinai when the people were ordered to gather around the base of the mountain so Yahweh could speak to them directly. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. And the whole mountain quaked violently. Exodus 19.18 The effect upon the people of Israel... All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us or we will die. Exodus 20, verses 18 to 19. God employs smoke, as he does in verse 8. To declare, as it were, I am God and you are not. I am holy and you are not. Thus, as in 1 Kings 8, 10 to 11, the Lord God uses smoke to express his glory. Again, not in a gracious manner, but in a fierce, restrictive manner. It happened that when the priests came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. When the glory of the Lord fills a space, there's no longer room for mere men. Chapter 15 ends with a climactic statement about our holy, glorious God. He is just moments away from unleashing Act 3, the fiercest and concluding demonstration of his wrath upon the earth and upon those who have clung to their depravity through countless invitations and opportunities to repent. The invitations are now at an end. The opportunities have now ceased. Now comes death and destruction, as described in chapter 16. Later will come the final judgment for each of, each of them, dead, dead or alive and eternity in the lake of fire. Let's conclude with a I think a profound statement by John MacArthur. He writes this, Once the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus Christ because of what he did for sinners, in the future, wrath will be poured out on sinners because of what they did to Jesus Christ. Mercy refused brings judgment. And in our next session, we'll see the beginnings of that final judgment and the seven bowls of wrath poured out on a sinful earth. Our Father God, like Israel around Mount Sinai, we, we tremble before your holiness, your righteousness. For it, like a beacon, reveals our own unrighteousness. How small we are compared to you. 
On the one hand, we rejoice in that. We see you as holy. We see you as large, exalted, magnified. And we're comfortable with that. We would not worship a God smaller than ourselves. But that comparison is still painful for us. For it reminds us of the unholiness in our lives, the unrighteousness, the sin, which you are gracious and merciful to forgive when confessed. So we thank you for that, and we bow down before you. We bow down before your wrath. It is part of who you are, and you have promised this, You have promised that this would happen, and now, in these prophecies, it's about to happen. We rejoice in our sovereign God. In the name of Jesus, amen.